Wonderful harvest. It is good to be with you, and today is uh, Sunday number 14 in our series through the book of Judges. Uh, We're going to be taking the book of Judges through uh, August, and uh, I'm officially going to say now that we're uh, technically halfway through this series, there are parts and things about the book of Judges that just make it a head-scratcher. There are some times where I'm just like through some of this as we've been working our way. It's like, <laughs> what is going on? And how is all this coming about? And, and the fact of the matter is, is uh, a book of Judges is the kind of book in God's Word that is especially hard for us people. And what I mean by that is us Western thinkers. Western thinkers, we are very much people, we love organized thought. We love to have things make sense, fit together, X plus Y equals Z, right? I mean, we love that kind of thinking, and we process that. And there's a lot of really good things about that. But one of the things about it that makes it hard is the realization that life is not a formula, the Lord is not a formula, and living by faith is not a formula. And as formulaic kind of thinkers, when we come across things that kind of mix it all up and and move it all around and it messes with our minds, like Ehud the assassin, like, like, is that okay to do that? Um, When we came across as well, we had Jael, the wife with a tent peg, the woman with a tent peg that took it through uh, the, the leader's head. Guys, be careful while you're watching golf this afternoon on the couch. Um, you know, we have these kinds of things going on with that Shamgar, the Matrix man, the, the Oxgoad warrior, and, and it just these various things. Gideon, Gideon, what, what, who are you and what's really going on with you? Because you are like all over the place with stuff. Um, it is hard for us. And then we come even to texts like today. Text like today that we dive into. This is the kind of text where you'll read, uh, let's just say you'll read 12, 10, 12 commentators. Half of them will be looking at uh, Jephthah, our guy for today, this Sunday and next Sunday, and kind of look at him and go, now there was a servant of the Lord. Um, Wearsby would be in that. Eddie would be in that. Um, some others, some guys are great guys. And then you've got others who talk about Jephthah as this master manipulating mobster. I mean, with that, you've got a Block and a Younger and Keller and, uh, and me in that. And yet you can read this from one side and go, but the, the dude seems like he's on spot on target. But listen, friends, one of the wonderful things about our God is that he is not a formula Okay? He is the kind of God that is so big and so grand and so beyond that when we get to the place where we're really comfortable with Him and we're really comfortable with just like reading the Word just to get the chicken McNugget spiritual insights for the day, when we get to that point, we're in trouble. Because God that we just sang about is worthy and beyond and strong and big and every day should be blowing our minds to the point to where it's like you are so unfathomable that I can't even say the word. You are so beyond that I don't even know what beyond is. And so when we come to passages like this, there's parts of me where I'm like, I so want to go and redo the first service. And yet I get the second service. So we're going for it. We're trying to bring this together because this is a text, guys, where you look at this and you just go, this guy seems to be on. And I'm coming at you today saying, I think the part of the problem in this is we are meeting a guy and God's people that are playing religious. And yet in the reality of it, there's mass manipulation that's going on. And we're going to take a look at that here in just a second. Life is not a formula. The Lord's not a formula. Living by faith is not a formula. Get uncomfortable. Um, Because living for the Lord is an uncomfortable place to be, isn't it? 
It is. All right. Before we dive in, before we wrestle with the text, I want to kind of uh, put one master picture, if you will, on the table for us. Where is the book of Judges at in the whole movement of the Old Testament, God's redemptive history? I think this will, hopefully this will help us grab a hold of what's going on uh, with it all. I've got six words at the top of your uh, sermon notes page inside your bulletin update thing there. Um, we're, we're not legalistic about that. Um, and so on the top, there are six words I want to give to you on what's going on and what God is doing in the Old Testament there. Word number one is called, called out. Genesis, in the book of Genesis, God called out Abraham, and God called out Abraham telling him that he is going to use Abraham to build a nation, to build a people that would one day be as many as the stars in the sky that would bless the world, that those who bless them will be blessed, those who curse them will be cursed. God is going to, he's calling out a people, and then God not only calls out, but God builds up, built, built, called and built. God builds up a people. We see that in Genesis from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. We see in the beginning of Exodus chapter 1, God is building his people. And it's like, yeah, but they're in slavery in Egypt. Yep, they are, but God is building his people. They're actually growing from a small band to a group of some two million slaves. But God is building up his people. And then God, after God builds them, he brings them out. They're brought out. That's the book of Exodus. God, through Moses, brings his people out. Then after bringing them out, he places them in. Uh, the book of Joshua, if you were here a couple, well, maybe three years ago, about half of you weren't here then, but we went through the book of Joshua at that time, and in that we saw that God was bringing a people into a place. He brought them out and he placed them in, and the place that he put them in, the promised land, is not a vacation place. The promised land was always intended to be a sending base place. It wasn't, you've arrived, it was a, you've arrived for the next thing to get established. He's called them, he's built them, he's brought them, he's placed them, and now as we see in really the end of the book of Joshua, and this is where the book of Judges fits. God's design was that he would bring this nation, these people, into the promised land place, and he would establish them not to, not to sit, not to get stuck, but establish them for the next word, sent, sent out. God was wanting them to come into this land that they would have a place, if you will, smack dab in the very center of the world at that time that they would have a place, that they would be established in, that then they would be sent out, as all the way back in Exodus talks, that they would be priests of the world, priests of the nations. Here's the sad fact. We are in the book of Judges in this what is supposed to be this time to where God's people are becoming established to be sent out. And the fact of the matter is rather than being established to be something, they're established in stuck. And in fact, I think the book of Judges is not just saying they're stuck and they're having up and down times. I think actually what's going on in the book of Judges is they're stuck and they are spiraling into progressive disintegration. And spiraling into progressive disintegration is not the progressive sanctification concept that God was intending for them to happen during this establishing themselves to be sent out time. The wheels are coming off the bus with God's people. And there's a lot that we can learn from it. Friends, we are not to be like the people in the book of Judges. By the way, called, built, brought, placed, established, sent. I would even say that's what uh, a person who comes to Christ, that should be your story. Called, built up, brought out, increasingly uh, becoming set apart unto the Lord, placed somewhere, established in that place, not to sit down and hunker down, but established to be an increasing testimony to where we are. Oh, and by the way, this should be this church's story. A church that has been, if you will, called out. We're built up, even all the way back, some almost 
nine years ago now just from some homes with small band of some 20 people and just built out of that and, and then brought out and, and placed in, placed in an ascending base place. To be here, not to hunker down and just to become all about ourselves and our own little gig going on here, but ultimately to be established in this place so that we can be an increasing sending base place sent out, right? That's what we want to pursue. That's what we're heading for. And that's what the book of Judges is about. And the book of Judges is like this warning call, oh, harvest, let's not get stuck in established to be. Let's go for it. Let's get after it. So today, Judges chapter 10, we're going to be in uh, verse 17, and then uh, three plays commonly made when God's people live like they are lost. Three plays, three kind of how we, things that we play with and not get on with uh, outside of. And then next Sunday, I'm going to add two more, maybe, maybe three. Uh, we'll see what happens this week out of... <laughs> Judges chapter 11 and into 12. And God, I just pray as we dive in that you would show yourself here, right? That's what we want, church, right? We want the Lord to speak from his word that we would be a people that is increasingly glorifying to you. May you help us be that, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we begin with the context. I actually want to begin where Pastor Robbie and uh, Eric left us off last week, right at verse 16, chapter 10 in Judges. And it begins, verse 16, so they, uh, God's people, put away the foreign gods from among them. If you're here last Sunday, remember that? By the way, put away, they, they, they didn't do a Colossians 3, I might say. Colossians 3 talks about put it to death. And by the way, it's not like put it to death and you'll never struggle with sin again. It's the idea in Colossians 3 that every time it comes up to want to come after you and tempt you and pull you in, put it to death. And then 10 minutes later, when it comes after you to want to take you in, put it to death there. It's that ongoing, continuous, present, active, continuous idea of putting it to death. But as Pastor Eric just brought up so rightfully here, it's like they just kind of put it in the closet, set it on the bookshelf, conveniently out of the way, but accessible. It's encouraging but it's also concerning. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and, and served the Lord. They began serving the Lord, but boy, they had some issues. And here's the big statement. And he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is a major statement, I think, here for what is actually the undergirding base for these next couple weeks. I understand what we're going to be reading today is especially God's people are such master manipulators of things. And yet I think in it, then the next Sunday we're going to see God still does a work. But know this, God doesn't do a work because his people deserved it. God did a work because, I think coming out of verse 16, he just became where he can't bear watching the misery of his people anymore. I think what we're going to be reading is not only it's sad, but because God's people are in a point of misery, and yet God in it still is going to be who God is. Listen, friends, God's sovereignty, God's warrior pursuing love and activity and work is never dependent upon you and me. And we come to Christ by grace through faith, and then there's oftentimes a tendency for us to think that then afterwards we earn God's favor. That's not the way it works. The Lord knows how frail we are. But in fact, it's his mercy and his grace that drives us to want to pursue after him. And to experience what he is going to do in a position of relationship. Not in a position of stuck. And here we see this, God is going to do a work, but it's not because his people earned it. Oh, don't go there. Oh, please don't go there. Don't think that way. Don't think that way. Verse 17. Here's the story. Then the Ammonites were called to arms. Like, okay, boys, we're going to war. I think that's exactly what they said. And they encamped at Gilead. 
Uh, think of it this way. Gilead, think of a region. This, this word here is used multiple times and it can get confusing. They encamped in Gilead. It's the area of Gad. I'm not using a map today uh, uh, for purpose. I don't want to get caught up in the map in the cities. That, that's not the point of it. But the Sea of Galilee is up north. The, the, the Dead Sea is down south. The Jordan River goes in between. To the, to the west of all of that is, is the Promised Land. To the east of all of that is, is the areas where some of the tribes were at here. There's Gad kind of in the middle. That's Gilead. Just think kind of like right between the middle of those to the east side of the Jordan River. And so that's where this is taking place. So the Ammonites, who uh, are not God's people, they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped in Mizpah. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody from the west side of the Jordan all came over. It's using the term, the pe- God's people, people of Israel in this region were gathering in Mizpah. It's in that uh, Gad-Gilead region area. Again, the exact place isn't important. In fact, there's uh, debates on exactly where that is. That's not the point. Verse 18, and the people of the leaders of Gilead... Uh, of this region said to one another, these are God's people, they said, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over, by the way, very important term, he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Okay, what's going on? An enemy in this region has stepped their foot into the region and it's like, we want to go to war with you. And so the leaders of the region, the elders of the region, they all come together. Uh, God's people come together. The leaders of God's people come together, and and they have a powwow, and it's about what are we going to do? And what do they talk about? The leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Now, I want to be very careful here, and I realize as I go through this, you could be going, Doug, you're taking a hard line on them. Uh, you're thinking the worst of them. We're not supposed to do that. I'm just going to tell you, I don't have the time to spend about the amount, extensive amount of time trying to go through this debate on where are all these people really coming from. But I am coming from you the place that they're, they're speaking in a bad place. What do I mean by that? Because they have a warrior, and his name is Yahweh. And yet in it, here of anybody, wouldn't you think that the elders of a region, of the, one of the tribes would be gathering together and somewhere in God's word, wouldn't, it doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but it does tell us what we need to know here. And the thing that we are told that we need to know is that when they got together, they were looking for a man. And they were looking for a man to go in this war. And I just do, I say both as, as a pastor, as, as an elder here, and in that capacity, it's like, oh, may that not be us. We are in a war zone in this time in redemptive history, but not by man's might, only by the Lord's. Nothing about them coming together and declaring Yahweh is our warrior. Nothing of them telling about what God has done and and face down, let's meet, let's seek the Lord, let's all come together and go before the Lord. By the way, what's different is, is in all the preceding times we've been leading up to these with the judges, we have these common statements that God's people are going unhooked, uh, jumping in evil, whoring after other gods, and then it makes these statements where it talks about in this how, how the Lord raises up a deliverer. And then we find out who the deliverer is. That's not happening here. And the pattern is broken, and it matters. It's a continual spiraling down. And now God's people are looking for a man to win the war, to be their mighty warrior. And he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Who are they to declare who should be head over this entire tribe? Well, we'll learn more. Here, friends, I think what we are seeing is God's people live like they are lost when they play self-wisdom. When they play self-wisdom. And what I mean by that is when they function out of when they work out of the place of their own self-wisdom. Even God's people coming together and using passages that say, where many come together, wisdom abounds. Yeah, but it depends. 
It depends if they're coming together and putting all of their man-woman wisdom together or are they coming together and seeking the Lord's wisdom and together out of that, wisdom is filling the place. Here, they are playing self-wisdom, as we'll see. And by the way, God's people can do that. I mean, just in how we make decisions with life. I got a new job offer, and it has more money and a better title, so duh, that's got to be the wise thing to do. I'm not saying that it isn't, but maybe it isn't. You know, he, she, we're best friends. I mean, sounds like marriage to me. Hey, it's on sale. It's God's will. Right? Amen? <laughs> or here's another one oftentimes. That's what I believe. But that's what I believe. I'm just be honest. So, it's really not about what I believe and it's not about what you believe. It's ultimately about what does God say? I want to believe what God says. I want to believe what God believes. It makes sense to me. Churches can do this. Well, Church X does blank and Church Y has blank, so we have to. Really? You know, business and nonprofits do it this way. My past church did it this way. Or we can even select leaders and see people as leaders this way, kind of the Old Testament Saul approach. He, she looks like a leader. I mean, they're over six foot, and they're good looking, and they're not a dork. They got to be a leader. Or, uh, you know what? They're successful. Got to be a leader. Or they're rich, or they're educated. Or it can be like, man, they make decisions, and hey, leaders make decisions. I agree. I actually agree. And I actually think it's part of our problem today, holistically, just as a world, as well as, as, as God's people. Leaders make decisions, but, 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 but there's a major assumption in that. Leaders who are face down in making decisions, not in their own self-wisdom. Friends, the Lord's ways are not our ways. The Lord tends to sovereignly pick people we wouldn't, Abraham, Joseph. The Apostle Paul, Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you're the Colossians, one creator of all things, wouldn't you really want to make yourself looking like a leader, like hot and six-pack abs? I mean, let's just be frank about it. I would. And yet the Scripture says that our Savior had nothing about him that looked impressive. And they're seeking a man. I'm going to move on here, but one last statement. I just want for you to know, and hopefully this is said humbly, but the last year plus, just the leadership here as pastors, as elders, we've just been pressing into and talking about and I hope face down before the Lord and what the Lord would have for us ahead. And I am convinced that the stage of the dynamics of the church size we're at right now, this is the point in time over the last year and a half where churches can start going sideways. Where elders or pastors can start making it their thing. And I pray we're not. So by God's grace, we've been patient But we're pressing ahead. And here in some weeks, months, near future, you're going to be hearing more. And I pray it comes from a place not like this. Right? Together, face down. God's people live like they are lost when they play self-wisdom. Secondly, God's people live like they are lost when they play people. 
Watch this. This is a sad thing. Verses 1 through 11, this whole thing here. This is just so sad. People playing one another. And it's God's people playing God's people in this. Using, manipulating, contriving, contorting. Chapter 11, verse 1. Here we go. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, from this region, was a mighty warrior. Why is that brought up? Well, because remember the last thing we just saw, they're looking for a man to lead them in war. By the way, didn't they have any other men? Hey, listen, let me say it this way. When people get established and stuck, leaders don't rise up. One of the ways you can see where there's a place where people, where they're wanting to press ahead and move ahead for the Lord is when leaders are continually being raised up. More of that here, Lord, more of that. And so here it is, Jephthah, the Gileadite. He was a mighty warrior. He was one of them. He was a Gileadite as well. Uh, There's a whole story here saying that, but, there's a but here, but he was the son of a prostitute. Oops. That's awkward. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I do want to drive a little bit of a point home. Who cares? Dead serious. Who cares? Now, Jephthah's dad, okay, some conversations need to be had. But Jephthah had no choice in this. And Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. So, hey, I don't know what your background is or where you come from, but if you come from somewhere that's, quote, not normal, you are welcome here. Okay? You need to hear that, and we need to hear that. You are welcome here. Because there is a God who redeems and who works. And I don't know what your story is or what your background here is, but the God of the universe is way bigger than any kind of awkward story. Okay? We good with that? No, seriously, are we? Okay, good. Because I think the Lord is. And he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was, Gilead, this is the name, the, the, Gilead's all over the place. His dad was probably wealthy. His dad was probably a, a major player. Was the father of Jephthah. Jephthah comes from a prominent home. His, he's the son of a prominent dad's prostitute activity. Move on. <laughs> Verse 2. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out. Why do we do that? They drove Jephthah out and said to him, it's very important on how this flows, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. Do do you see what's going on here? The the point of the text, the way the, the writer is helping us understand this is, listen, he was a stepbrother, he was a half-brother in this. By the way, in this, the fact, the way that all this is moved around and some information we're going to see in a moment, the whole half-brother thing, the adopted child in it whole deal, it's the kind of thing that in that day, most likely out of Levitical Deuteronomy uh, processes, most likely what took place is Jephthah's fathers went to the elders, most likely confessing the situation, acknowledging the situation and adopting Jephthah in his son. He now had full inheritance rights as a child. When they get older, and we're not even told how many kids that they have by his one wife, then there's this stepson from a prostitute that's there, and the sonny boys are all talking about the dad's getting older and he's going to die at some time inheritance, and uh, Jephthah's going to take some of the peace. And I don't want him taking some of the peace because he comes from a prostitute. And all of this is most likely a deal that was dealt with before the elders later on. It was dealt with for him to come into the inheritance. And now with what's about to take place, most likely because of what's said here in a couple minutes, the elders were involved in the sending him out part of it, the removal of the inheritance of it all. And they drove him out. For you are the son of another woman. 
And so verse 3, then Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Quickly, Jephthah, by his brothers, most likely brought to the elders and a whole thing laid down, flees up north. Tob is up uh, kind of east, still on the east side of the Jordan River, up by the Sea of Galilee, aways. The Tob was known as like a Gotham before Batman took care of everything. Okay? <laughs> Tob was not a great place. Tob was where all the bad boys went. Tob was the place where the mobsters grew up and the gangs developed out of. And Jephthah heads up there. By the way, there's some of this story that is so like the story of Joseph. Joseph in it with his brothers, cast him out, sell him. They want to get rid of him because he's an annoying little brother. <laughs> and they send him off to Egypt as a slave. They, want, they were going to kill him, but they send him off out of their own guilt. But I would need to note something here because the Hebrew in the words here where it talks about this on what happens with Jephthah here. In Jephthah, uh, as, as the brothers are playing with him, now Jephthah is becoming someone not like a Joseph. Jephthah is now choosing in the area that he is, in the terminology that's being used here. Jephthah, I think the New National Version says, he, he joins himself with gangs of scoundrels. The terminology here, as an Israelite is reading this, is this. He headed up north and he's now a Vito Corleone. He's a mob boss. He's got himself involved with bad people and he's leading the people. I'm just going to cut to the chase there with that. All right, that, that's what's going on. And hear me on this. That is not an excuse of the fact that he was the son of a prostitute and got booted out of his home and inheritance because that didn't happen with Joseph. And while in it we have compassion for the guy, in it, verse 3, is helping us to understand the choices that Jephthah has made as a result of his circumstances. And Jephthah, as I understand the text, has now become kind of a mobster. And he's leading mobsters. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Why? Why would they do that? So here they are. They're looking for a leader. They can't find a leader. So can you imagine being in that meeting? Let's make a list of guys. There's Doug, and, and there's Larry, and, and there's Bob, and there's Billy Boy, and there's the list goes on, and they're all like, nope, 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 nope. We don't got any leaders. And then someone goes, hey, wait a second. We need a bad boy for this war. Can you even hear the, the song? You know, bad boy, bad boy. You know, it's, and they're thinking it, and you can hear it in the background, and they're like, we need a bad boy to win this war. Who's the bad boy that can win the war? <laughs> Jephthah. Listen, it's understood Jephthah has this whole understanding of who he is down in his hometown. He's up here, down here. The people know the kind of guy that Jephthah is. And he's not the kind of guy you want living in your neighborhood Unless he's on your side and you're in a war, then you want Jephthah. Because he's got the black car and the guns mounted and he knows how to use it and he talks with marshmallows in his cheeks. <laughs> okay? That's what's going on here. Verse 6. And so they talked to Jephthah. And they said to Jephthah, come, uh, be our leader. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pause. Uh, in the English, we don't get this. The word leader in the Hebrew that's used right there is different than over at the end of verse 18, the word head. Note this. They've talked about whoever we can find to make head over all of us. They can't find anybody. So let's go to the bad boy. Okay, they go to the bad boy. And they change the level of what they promise. Now they say, hey, will you come be our leader that we can fight against the Ammonites? This is all playing games. Verse 7. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, with the marshmallows in his cheeks. That's in the text. 
He says, uh, boy, and I get this. Did you not hate me? By the way, I think there's a key clue on why the elders were involved in the booting of Jephthah out. Because if your brothers were the only ones, why are you speaking to the leaders this way? I think the leaders were involved in this. Listen, did you not hate me and did you not drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? I totally agree. And I think anybody would be thinking that in this situation. Verse 8, so the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that is why we have turned to you now. This actually makes no sense. That what? This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us, fight over the Ammonites, and be our, look, they've changed the term, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Words matter, friends, and we're going to see both those words are used here in just a second. And what's going on is the elders come and they're like, we don't have anyone to lead us, so let's go get the bad boy. So they go get the bad boy. They talk with him and they say, hey, I'll tell you what, we'll make you leader. We're not going to talk head yet. We'll make you leader to help us win. And he's like, dude, what? what?" And so they come back and they go, oh, okay, yeah, no, we really need you because you're like the man and now we'll make you head. This is such a manipulation game going on. Let me just say it this way. God's people are not acting like God's people, and God's people are not acting like there is a God. Verse 8, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, uh, that's why we've turned to you, we'll make you our head. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me. By the way, let me just say this. Even in the Godfather, the Lord has talked about. I'll just leave it at that. I don't think this is relationship talk. I think this is just fact talk. I will be your head. He grabs a hold of that term. Verse 10, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness. And by the way, in any court, they would say that. Any unbeliever, any believer would say that. Nothing big about that statement. The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him what? Head and leader. Friends, the two words are used. And it's used in here, and I think to help us see, this is massive play. And the people made him head and leader overall. By the way, why didn't the people make Yahweh head and leader? And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord. This is the author putting this in, before the Lord at Mizpah, which is true. And people are being played. And sad things are happening. And let's roll the story. Verse 12. Jephthah's in his head and leader. And here's how it goes. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites. All right, we're now ready to do the war. Here we go. And he said, uh, he had the messengers say to the king, uh, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? What are you noting here? There's a lot of me and my going on. There's not a holisticness. There's not a God's peopledness. There's not even a Yahwehness in this. It's human to human talk. And this is what fits in the day. What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Amorites responded back through messengers saying, Well, here's what the problem is Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So he's ticked off because he's going back and he's saying, Hey, back in the day, you guys took some of our land and changed our borders. By the way, nowadays, right now in our world, we understand border talk, don't we? And that's part of what this king is doing here from his position on where he's at. Now, Jephthah answers, and I'm going to read this. It goes from verse 18 to the, uh, verse 27. I'm going to read this. If you get lost while I'm reading this, let me just say, well, here's what happens. Jephthah goes through, this is masterful. This is attorney talk, which I don't know is good or bad. <laughs> but this is masterful political uh, dialogue 
on positioning between two leaders. But I will say, and I just don't have the time today to go into it, much of what Jephthah says is spot on true historical information. Some of what Jephthah says is incorrect data being manipulated. And at the heart of all this, we're going to read this incredible thing about some history. And then, and man, seriously, if you're an attorney, if you're a political leader, there's, 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 a, there's a study in this and how he goes about it. But in this, I'm going to read through it, and you're just going to see there's history in it and, and these other things in it. But I think this is pure human work going on here. I'll just say it. I don't think the Lord is in any of this. Let me just read. Jephthah said, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, "Uh, please let us pass through your land. Uh, But uh, the king of Edom would not listen, and, and they sent also the king of Moab, but he would not consent, so Israel remained in Kadesh. Bottom line was Israel didn't want to take this land. The promised land was on the west side of the Jordan. They just wanted to pass through, okay? And so they're just trying to say, hey, can we pass through? Can we get a, a, a toll gate ticket and take all two million and a half of us? Is that okay? Uh, verse 18, so he's telling the history. And then they journeyed through the wilderness, went around the land of Edom, and the land of Moab arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, capped on the other side of the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through the land of your country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, and there's part of that I could understand. So Sion gathered all his people together and camped at Jaaz and fought with Israel, and the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they, pos- and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. Here's, let me sum it this way. King, you have a revisionist understanding of history, and it's wrong. Let me clarify it for you. This is what happened. We did not take your land. That's not how it happened. And in fact, you actually, the land should never have passed to you because the land prior to that should have passed directly to us. It's incredible. And and he's all spot on there. Verse 23, he continues, series of questions. So then, so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemish, your God, gives you to possess? By the way, Chemish was not the Ammonite God. Chemish was a Moabite God. There's all kinds of discussion on why did Jephthah state it wrong. I'm just going to tell you. I think he stated it wrong to tick him off. Seriously. Because he's a manipulator. And he'll play with theology. He'll play with false gods. He'll even, in a part I don't have time to go into today, he'll even play with God himself in this. Will you not possess what Chemish, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them while Israel lived in Heshbon? and its villages, and in Arar, and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon. 300 years, here's the big point. Why did you not deliver them within that time? Here's what he's saying. For 300 years, this has been okay. And now today, you raise it. You're wrong. King, you're messed up. And on that, he's right. And on that, he's right. Verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong. Not us. Not God's people. You do me wrong by making war on who? The Lord, the judge, which he's right on this, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. I'm going to end there. 
we're going to pick up next week, and it's going to add, and I think it will help you understand more why I'm at this place where I don't think Jephthah is living like an honorable guy. This is also, in this, I think it's clear God's people, as far as the leaders, are not living the way the Lord would want them to be. They're not seeing who the Lord is. They're playing around. And I'll just end it here and say it this way. This is a warning for us. Because we can be this. And I'm just going to be really straight up with you here right now. Because the fact of the matter is, I think, if we're to be totally honest, playing self-wisdom, playing other people, playing God, everyone in this room wrestles with all of those. And I don't want us to think that we are so high and mighty that that wouldn't be our issue. Because I actually think that it is our issue. Next week we're going to see some vows and some pride showing up, but I just want to finish just kind of hitting that home. God's people can play the self-wisdom game. I think this is the right thing. It feels right. It just makes sense to me. And we make life decisions sometimes, and even small decisions sometimes, based on how we feel about it. There's a whole theological thing called the noetic effect of sin. That means, friends, we can't trust our hearts. And I may feel something. And it may be the exact wrong thing. Like earlier in the book of Judges, going up against 120,000 warriors, if I was the leader, I'd feel like I want a lot more than 30,000 leaders. But God's view was 30,000 is way too much. How about 300? I'm not feeling so good about that. But as Isaiah 55, 8 says, the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways my ways. I'm just saying we need to be careful that we don't play the self-wisdom game ourselves. Secondly, we need to be careful that we don't play the people game. And I'm talking about one another. It's amazing that we think other people can meet our needs. Listen, we've been created in such a way that there is only one that can meet our needs. And he's not in this room, and she's not in this room. Our Lord God is the only one. And yet we think that a wife, or we think that a husband can fill the hole that is a God-sized hole. And husbands manipulate wives, and wives manipulate husbands. And friends manipulate friends, and parents manipulate children, and children manipulate parents. And church leaders manipulate God's people, and God's people manipulate church leaders. And I'm just saying, wow, God's people, let's be careful. Let's watch ourselves with our self-wisdom and our playing with people. And lastly, and we're going to especially see next weekend uh, as it will build off of this, boy, we can play God. We can play the Lord. We can manipulate Him, talk of Him in such a kind of ways. We can talk the Lord, and yet there's no relationship with the Lord. We can talk the Lord and have no life in the Lord. Honestly, I think that's what's really going on in in, in Judges 11. They're talking the Lord, just like Vito Corleone would. And yet, where's the relationship? Where's the depth? Where's the face down? Where's the seeking after? God becomes a tool for me. We can play God by thinking that he's a formula. If I do X and I do Y, God will do Z. But Judges is showing us that God does Z here and not there. And he's, I think, Honestly, he's messing with our heads to realize he's not a formula. He is a sovereign warrior pursuer who will do what he chooses to do. And sometimes he chooses to do the things that I love. And sometimes he chooses to allow and do the things that actually make life harder for purposes that are beyond my understanding. Whether that be discipline and correction or whether that be ministry or growth. 
Let's be careful this week, friends. Let's watch the self-wisdom. Let's watch that we're not playing people. And let's definitely not play God, okay? Lord, so we ask in that place, would you help us? Lord, we are frail and you know that. We're weak and you know that. And far too often we think that we have to become strong if you are going to be strong before, through, and around us. But the fact of the matter is, you call us to be strong in humility. You call us to be strong in face downness before you. And Lord, maybe for some here in this room, it's with some things going on in their life, maybe some decisions or directions, and maybe this is a pause morning to go, my goodness, I've really been just running this by my own self-wisdom. God, I just pray they would put it on pause and they would just seek you. And they would lay it before you and just cry out to you. God, I pray as we enter this week that we would just be increasingly sensitive that we would not be playing people, using people, manipulating people with our words, with our actions, with how we go about things. Oh God, may we be the kind of people that aren't using people but are serving people. Oh, help us, Lord. Most of all, God, I would pray you would help us here this coming week to not play games with you. To not think higher of ourselves than we should. To not formula you or manipulate you or act like we are your God. Instead, I pray that we would seek after you as the sweet, loving king of all who loves you. Lord, if there is someone in here who does not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, oh God, I pray you would press that into their hearts that they would know that they need to come to you. Arms open. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you that you are going to do what you are going to do. And therefore we can press ahead without fear, without fret, but with joy and confidence that our God, the strong God, is the one who is God. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.